Okay. All right, so we'll uh, jump right into it. As uh, this is our final class, there's no no PowerPoint today, so I'm not gonna. We're just gonna have to listen to my voice and not fall asleep. Um, I have my special cap, so if you're wondering what's going on, Sharon Seal got this for me. I don't know where she got it, but I can imagine where she got it. But it fits good, so I think it fits I right. I Chase down Michigan Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I would, hey, she may have beat somebody up for it. You know? <laughs> I shouldn't say that on the recording. <laughs> uh, so, lesson six. If you don't have lesson six, that's the one we'll be mainly spending our time on. Uh, the handout's over there. I do want to wrap up lesson five, because we didn't finish up lesson five from last week. Uh, talking about Islamic faith and practice. Uh, and any questions you guys have along the way, feel free, especially as we get into uh, chapter six, the um, Islamic fundamentalism. So I'm sure there's some questions there, or at least some things will come up. Um, last week, I think we covered, or two weeks ago, the first two of the five pillars, the testimony and the prayer. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about the almsgiving, the zakat, um, and pilgrimage, and then the fasting, and then we'll wrap up and go right into the next section. Um, this act of almsgiving, this zakat, as they call it in Arabic. So this is one of those things that goes has its origin all the way back to Muhammad. If you remember, we talked a little bit about Muhammad would put the communities that they conquered early on, he would put them under tribute, and so they would have to send money uh, to to Muhammad in order, you know, to show that they're recognizing his leadership. Um, and so this, that's where this this starts from, uh, that, that going all the way back. So it's not charity. So a lot of times, sometimes you'll hear this idea, you'll hear it described as charity. If you've ever heard it, the five pillars talked about, this almsgiving. Um, but it's it's really not, it's not an almsgiving, it's not charity, uh, is, is how we would understand it. It's more of a religious tax. Uh, the idea of a religious tax. You give it, normally it's given once a year. If you do it according to Islamic law, it's a once a year thing, two and a half percent given uh, in various forms of wealth. So it may not be money, but two and a half percent of your wealth. Uh, it's practiced in different ways. So in some countries, the government controls that money. So when you give that two and a half percent, you give it to the government, they distribute it, they handle it, they figure out what you want to do with it. Uh, in some countries, like here in the United States, it would be given to an Islamic organization. You know, may, maybe your local mosque. It may be um, uh, they have these uh, organizations. Waqf. Uh, it's kind of a hard pronunciation, but they're uh, uh, religious endowments. So, in some countries, that's who that, that's who handles. The money, uh, so it's kind of different in every situation. Yeah. So is that additional? Is there like an additional, um, like giving to the churches to keep them afloat, or is that something totally different? Uh, no. So that's something different. So there's not like it's not like how we would understand it here, where you actually give money to the, the, your local mosque to keep it going and pay the salary. So there's that money isn't um, th- there's no regular collection like how we understand it here. Um, but there uh, so. Um, yeah, that's different from what this is. This is the once a year. It's just a once a year tax that you give to some, you know, an organization, the government, something. So to, yeah, so there's like an additional correct thing 
So that's not part of the five pillars then? The additional to keep the church closed? Yeah, yeah, that's not part, correct. Um, so it's required of everyone, uh, 16 years and older. Um, let's see. Um, the, just like all the other pillars, all five of the pillars, the almsgiving is one of those things that it bases itself in the community. So it's the idea of every Muslim is giving this money for the greater good. So this money sometimes is used to help uh, Muslims who are in need. Uh, it's used to help build other mosques. Uh, so in Saudi Arabia, you know, so you were asking your question about does this help the upkeep and that kind of thing. A lot of that money for Sunni mosques comes out, you know, comes directly from Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia actually is funding the the preacher, the, the one who preaches, the imam. He's funding the, the cost of the building. So none of the people are actually giving toward what their money that they may give actually doesn't go to the upkeep because that's being funded by Saudi Arabia. Um, and so sometimes money goes to that kind of thing. But it's all this idea of um, a... a the sense of community, you're giving back to help help the community, and every Muslim is doing this. You know, it's, we're all doing this as one. The fourth pillar, the pilgrimage, the Hajj, which mentioned this a little bit. Um, this is a uh, is seen as is usually described as one of the most momentous occasions in the life of every Muslim. This uh, journey to Mecca uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's an event that each and every Muslim is supposed to take at least once in their lives. Uh, of course, there's they make considerations for those who are unable to because of physical problems. There's they make uh, financial if you're not financially able, um, you don't have to do it. And actually, nowadays there's situations where rich people can pay someone else pay for someone else to go on their benefit. So, like if I don't feel like going. You know, I could pay for Aaron, and Aaron will go, and I get the credit on my my account gets the credit basically. Um, the events of the Hajj, so it's not just like go to Mecca and check it out, right? So it's like it's not just a vacation or something. Uh, all the events, it's at a certain time of year, and it's uh, it's very ritualized. So everything you do is is very ritualized when you arrive. So you arrive in Mecca. Um, uh, let's see. So some of the examples, you know, you would go. Uh, there's certain things you say as you enter the city. There's certain ways you dress. Um, certain things you abstain from. Um, so, a person on Hajj, for instance, he's not allowed to shave. They're not allowed to cut their nails. Uh, as I said, they all wear a particular outfit. All the men. So there's no way for them to know uh, wealth that is supposed to be. So everyone is kind of all dressed the same. Uh, no marital relations. You're not allowed to use cologne, that kind of thing. Um, no fighting or arguing is supposed to happen. Um, even if, and this is one of the things that surprising women are supposed to cover their face. So even if you live in a country where the women cover full, their full face, while you're doing the Hajj, you're not supposed to cover your face. So the women can cover their hair, but they're not supposed to cover their face. Um, men, the, the shawl, they wear like a robe, but it's because they're not supposed to wear any clothing with stitching. So that's why they wear this like wrap thing that wraps all the way around their body. Um, yeah, and so it's also not one of those things where, you know, so everyone's supposed to do it, but every country is given a quota. So Mecca, 
it, uh, Saudi Arabia gives every country a quota. You can send these many people this year. And so if you don't make the lottery, you can't go. Uh, so, uh, and also you can't just show up like, hey, I think, you know, you know, the Hajj is coming up and I got some money this year. I think I'm going to go. So it's like you have to register, you have to get in the lottery, and then your country hasn't been, can't have already reached its limit in order for you to qualify. Uh, but, of course, just like most things, you know, that, that lottery usually only applies to the common person. So if you're rich, if you're, you know, uh, someone of importance, then you don't even, you know, you, that wouldn't matter. You just would go if you want to go. Uh, but each each country, uh, which is inter- I thought was interesting, is um, gets a quota on how many people they can send every year. The last pil- uh, last pillar again, and and as I as I said for every one of these, just like uh, all the other pillars, the Hajj is again one of those things. It's the idea every Muslim is doing this once in their life. When you're there, everything is set up to make you forget about your individuality and to make you feel a part of a community. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's dressed the same. Everyone's focused <laughs> on this spiritual experience. Um, you know, you're you're joining in the long line of Muslims before you and who are coming after you who are participating in this event. Uh, so it's all building the sense of the oneness, the, the community of Islam. Uh, fasting, the last pillar, final pillar, fasting. So, um, the final pillar is the fasting during the month of Ramadan. So uh, Ramadan, because they use a lunar calendar, it kind of changes when it happens every year. Um, but it's the significance of the month is that Ramadan is the month that uh, Muhammad started to receive his revelation of the Quran. So that's the month is important for that reason. It's the only month referred to in the Quran. Um, significant events in the life in the history of Islam have taken place during that month. So you know the, some important battles, um, birth of Hussein. So remember we talked about Hussein uh, in, in Shia Islam. Hussein is born during the month of Ramadan. Uh, again, the Quran is revealed to Muhammad during the month of Ramadan. So it's a, a significant month. It has very a lot of religious significance. Basically, it's just dawn till dusk fasting. No food, no water. You're not allowed to smoke. You're not allowed to, you know... Um, you're not even supposed to... Uh, little things like uh, when you brush your teeth, you know, you can't have to be careful not to swallow... You can't take certain medicines because you can't. You're not supposed to swallow things. Um, let's see. Uh, the only, you know, you're allowed for emergencies. Pregnant and nursing women uh, and small children are exempted from the fast for health reasons. But everyone else, and if you live in Dearborn, it's the time of month where people get extra irritable. Mm-hmm. So if you work, people are, in, you know, extra on edge. Uh, I remember when we worked. Uh, We'd have to give extra. You, you kind of had to be a little more flexible because people were a little more testy, you know, like you because you know they're tired and they're also hungry, and so you know you you know that, that it's like a, the magnification of that hangry kind of <laughs> thing going on. What month does it fall? I forgot. It's well, it changes every year okay. because of the lunar calendar. It's usually at some point in the summer, okay. but it. it, it you know, it rotates when it actually is because of the lunar calendar. So, um, and so for most of us, if we're thinking about this, 30 days of not eating and drinking for the entire daylight, 
period. Right? So from 4 a, 4.35 a.m. till nightfall, you're not, you're not allowed to eat or drink anything. For most of us, this sounds miserable, the very idea of it for an entire month. But Muslims, almost universally, you, most Muslims you talk to and how you read about the, it's always a joyous occasion. You know, it's a, something that Muslims really look forward to because of the fact that when you, you know, you're doing this in community, it's a time of year where everybody in the family, the neighborhood, they're all getting together to break that fast in the evening. So you're having your neighbors over. Almost every night you're getting together with people and breaking that fast. You know, it's, it's, so it's a, actually a really, it's a time of community building, even though, you know, you're struggling all day to get through the day. Uh, but it really is a, a time that people look forward to every year, Muslims. Um, Jim, I taught Jim. the airborne, and um, they, they take it so seriously. And they do show a lot of joy, and they never complain. Yeah. The bilingual teachers would be, uh, I mean, I think they go out of their way to seem very content yeah. and joyful about it. And the kids, um, you know, like they, they could be excused from gym class, but... Um, they would still want to play. You know, yep. boys want to play. Yep. But they won't get a drink. Yep. So we have to be more concerned about not letting them do too much because we're going to get dehydrated and everything. Their tongues would be white. Yeah. But they never complained. They never got a drink of water. Right. Never. It's, it's and that, that, that's that's so that's amazing, right? So you and I remember reading something. Yeah, I remember reading something about uh, the Dearborn. Um, what is it? The, the tractors. What is the the high school? Fortson. So the high school football team, when they have practice and it's summer practices during Ramadan, mm-hmm. they'll meet like in the middle. They'll meet at like before dawn to do their summer practices, so that the guys or they'll just meet at the right times and they're not drinking. So they they have to still and the guys still want to do it. So you would think let's give them a break. Let's not practice. But like you said, they still are doing it. They want to participate. <coughs> They do so without complaining, right. uh, but you still have to take give them, you know, some getting <coughs> breaks because, of course, they aren't eating or drinking all day. Right. Uh, and you know, usually it's at a time of year where it's hot. It's not like now where you, mm. you, know, you, you might be, uh, you're not using as much energy, not sweating. Yeah, was. I think now I'm not absolutely sure, but I think that Jan, when she was substitute teaching in Dearborn, uh, the. Arab ladies would talk about how they would actually gain weight yeah. uh, during Ramadan because they would, pardon the term, they would pick out at night. Yeah, it's it's really you know it's getting together and having like a holiday meal almost every night, almost not every night, but almost every night for thirty days. So you're getting together most of your money. You know it's you know it's very much a time where you save up. And then you're spending, you're going and having these big elaborate parties and inviting people over because, you know, you want, everybody wants to entertain at that time of year. You know, you want to invite your neighbors over. You want to have your friends over. And so you're spending all this money. You know, if you go to Shatila during Ramadan, right before the fast breaks, the lines are out the door, you know, because people are just buying off stacks. I mean, literally... I've gone in there, you know, you go in there and they're buying stacks of sweets because they're just trays for themselves, you know, and it's, uh, it really is a surprising, you know, and then so everything's open late as well, like Shatila's open till 1 a.m. during Ramadan, you know, and you'll see kids there at midnight, you know, it's just, it's really a, it's really a surprising thing when you, you're not used to it, and there's no, there's no correlation with Western culture of this, you know, so it's, and it's, it's, 
again, just like all the other pillars, it builds the community. It's, it's really, you know, like I said, you're inviting your neighbors, you're inviting your friends, your family. You're thinking every Muslim across the world is doing this at this time. How do you get through the days? Because you're thinking every Muslim, all of us are doing this together. And it's not to say every Muslim, you know, uh, I remember when I lived in Dearborn, the neighbors would say, there's the old guy across the street who's kind of a grouchy guy, I'd sit on his porch. You know, he he was going to, he used to, he'd sit on his porch smoking and yelling at the kids as they go by. Uh, but they, they'd make fun of him because he's probably, they're like, ah, he's just in the backyard smoking. You know, he doesn't, he's not observant or whatever, you know, because, you know, so there's not everyone is observing the thing, but most of them are, and most of them are doing so gladly. And so it really is a, uh, one of those things that you, you really take notice of. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they, um, they're, again, there's just nothing like it. And the gaining the weight thing is, is a great, uh, you know, I think, a great example of this community building. Uh, yeah, Joe. I would say the closest thing that I could think of when I was Catholic, like Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, were only like I'll eat one meal the whole day. Yeah. And that's it. Right. So that's the closest it would come. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's the way we, that's the way we sacrifice. Yep. And we'll, at the time when I was Catholic, we believed we had to do it, but it was all the whole Catholic community. Right. Had to do it all in those two days. Yeah, so that is a good, that is a good close parallel. Yeah. And you know, they, they, and, 4:30 a.m. You know, everyone wakes up because this is this is it. You're gonna this is all you're gonna eat and drink today. So everyone wakes up early to get that meal usually, and then start your day. You know. But see, the kids, you know, how little ones are when they're in a dead sleep. Oh, they don't just wake up at right. four in the morning. Yeah, and so they be all day. Yeah, we just feel so for the little ones. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, any questions? Any of the five pillars again? Yeah, Joe. Uh, my question was, uh, you mentioned something like if you could not make it to this event, you could pay somebody. Yeah, the pilgrimage. Yep, you could pay someone to go uh, their their way. So it's not like the person makes money off it. You're basically paying for their trip to go. But at the time, listen, I can't go, but I pay somebody else. What am I supposed to do when I'm not on a trip? Should I be supposed to be on the same ritual that he's on a trip? Or I just say, you just okay, you're go about your life. You're taking my place. Yeah. I need my substitute. Exactly that. So you're doing whatever it is, your work, your whatever you do in life, you're just you don't break from that. You just are sending someone who gets you get the credit for. And, and of course, it's unusual, and of course, it's only something that the very rich can afford to do. But it does happen. Does the person going get credit as well? Yeah. 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 I think yeah. It's a two. The two for one. So that's not all that unusual because in the American Civil War and the American Revolutionary War, and I, I think some European wars too, you could hire somebody to take your position. That's actually a good point. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's actually a great point. That you know, so that that type of thing is not unusual, and I think there's other. Uh, I know there's other countries in the world that do something similar with their military conscription. You can pay someone to take your spot uh, in, in that, you Hunger know. Games. What's that? Hunger Games. There you go. Is, is it looked down upon to, to do? I mean, you said no. that it's acceptable, but, it, I mean, do people kind of give them the side eye and be like, hey, you know, no. Like, I mean, no. it's not from, just, what I've, not from what I've read, so I don't know. I don't know, maybe, uh, Brahim, if you ever... All the people, so we call them, like, Hajj, like, like, my 
my dad would call him like Hajj Salim because he went to Hajj. Yeah. And I've only ever known people that actually went. Right. I've never known anyone who did. Yeah. It's a, it's very, it's unusual. And so that's another good point I should have brought up. So when you go, everyone who goes is, you receive this title. So the Hajj, uh, haji, so you'll sometimes hear that phrase, that's where it comes from. Uh, haja is what you would call like the woman title. So you, you receive this title and it, it's like an honorific that you've gone on the pilgrimage. And sometimes, uh, so like a cap like this, you'll see men wearing white ones, pure white ones, uh, who, they, and it means the significance being that they've taken the, they've done the pilgrimage. And so now they have this title, uh, you know, to represent what th- that they've done this thing. Um, so I'm trying to pull up my other document here. So uh, any other questions on that? If not, we'll jump right into Lesson 6 here. So the five pillars, each one's frequency is, of course, dictated in and of itself. So it's not like the pilgrimage is once. Right. Fasting is every year. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not... You know, some of them you just do once in your lifetime, uh, and then others that you're tr- the prayer you're doing five times a day. So yeah. You mentioned something about their dress. They all have to dress in the same uniform, yeah, or the same type of clothing. Did they take that away from the Christians? I know when I was in the Amish community, all the men had to look wear the same outfits, and all the women wore the same outfits when they have their Sunday services. Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, where does this the no stitching? Yeah. Aspect, you know, where does this originate? If you remember, that was also in. Uh, if you remember the story of Jesus' burial, right? The, what mm-hmm. he's buried in, uh, they, they, the or when he dies, the, they fight over his robe, the, or they cast lots for his robe, the centurions. And they, they, if you remember the story, the robe is something that it didn't have any stitching. It was something that was unique because it was like a one-piece garment. Uh, and so there's this, there's this. Near East, Middle East, uh, you know, um, custom or something that, you know, what are its origin? Is it Judaism? That it's, or, I don't think it would be Christianity for sure. Okay. I think if there was anything, it would probably predate and go back to Judaism. Uh, and maybe there's a, maybe there's a borrowing from Judaism or it could just be a Near Eastern cult regional thing. Um, I've never read anything where, what the origin, I'm sure there's, there's significance. I just have not read what significance is. Thank you. All right. So, chapter, uh, so lesson six is on a fundamentalism. For some of you, this is what you've been getting, wanting to hit. So, let me read a quote before we get started. The first quote here The fundamental ma- malaise of modern Islam is a sense that something has gone wrong with Islamic history. The fundamental problem of modern Muslims is how to rehabilitate that history to get it going again in full vigor so that the Islamic society may once again flourish as a divinely guided society should and must. The fundamental spiritual crisis of Islam in the 20th century stems from an awareness that something is awry between the religion which God has appointed and the historical development of the world in which he controls. So it's talking about this fundamental, this sickness that Muslims see, and this obviously is a quote from the 20th century, so it's late 20th century when this guy wrote this quote, uh, and observing a non-Muslim observing Islam. So this crisis, this identity crisis, this fundamental problem with Islam. Why 
from Muslims that they look back and, and you know at the high point the golden era of Islam is usually looked at the 10th 11th century when you you'll hear that phrase the golden age of Islam and, and that's the 10th 11th century you know it's the, uh, the end of the Umayyad and the height of the Abbasid uh, uh, um, empire uh, and so that's when you hear about all the sciences being you know in 10th 11th century they're doing internal surgery in the in the in Persian in, in what is modern day Iran, you know they're discuss, they're doing math at a level that where we still are, you know where we algebra all these things are, are had their foundations back there in the tenth eleventh century, you know uh, astronomy all these things they're doing these advanced sciences in is in the Islamic countries in the tenth eleventh century when Europe is nowhere near as advanced, you know the Plato a lot of the writings of Plato survived to us today because they were brought Muslims went and, and brought this stuff and kept this knowledge alive in the 10th 11th century and then it gets seeded back into Europe because Europe had lost interest and it uh, had, had lost all um, awareness of, of these Greek writings and so this stuff survives because of this Islamic this height of the book but they're looking back so modern Muslims in the 20th century especially in the 20th century but going all the way back to the late 18th century, the end of the 18th century, are looking at how things are for for Muslims and Islamic countries, and they're seeing this downward trajectory. How did we get to where we are now, in light of where we were, you know, eight eight hundred years ago? What what happened? With, and this is especially the case by the time you get to the 20th century. Why is it that the West is on this upward trajectory, and Muslim countries are are almost backwards at this point? What is wrong? What happened? And so there's, that's this question. Would there be any relationship between uh, the West keeping any advance of the Moors into Europe, knowing Vienna was like 1600 or something? Yes, like uh, 16, yeah. And the Spanish, uh, southern Spain, 1500s and so on. Do you think that may have caused this, or is that just. Um, well, perhaps. Perhaps, but I think I mean there's a there's a I think you're you're leaning towards the right way in that there are the question isn't so much an internal one like what it, it must be something you know we want to say it's got to be Islam Islam is fundamentally wrong and so that's what you know our analysis is Islam is backwards and so it drives cultures downward. Uh, I think your answer is probably closer to what the reality is is that there things happen. Uh, in a uh, don't happen in a vacuum, but there are there are other things that are going on. There are geopolitics. Mm-hmm. There are uh, influences from other places. Uh, so there's this range of host of issues that people don't tend to consider, uh, and that's what you know. Those things need to be understood. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about some of these things and see if we can come up at least begin to address the issue. I think before 9/11. So for for some of you guys, 9-11, you know, is only something you you read about. I, mean, I don't know uh, to what, you know, I mean, most of you guys may remember it, but it's very, you were very little. You know, I still, you know, I'm old enough that I remember hearing it on the radio. You like hearing, or watch, you know, being, I was working out on my truck and hearing, like, that these there's something going on in New York. These planes have hit, and then so you go into the house and turn the TV on, and you're like, well... This isn't, you know, and it's one of those significant events. It's like the JFK. If you, for older generations, it's the JFK assassination. Like people remember where they were, what was going on when these events happened. 
But prior to 9-11, most Americans knew very, very little about Islamic fundamentalism. There's just very little awareness of Islam or Islamic fundamentalism. And I think along with that, many would have very little understanding of the Arabic word jihad. So almost very few people had heard that phrase or understood anything or that what's the significance of this phrase jihad prior to 9-11. You know, so this is one of these words, Islamic fundamentalism and jihad now, they conjure a range of things for the, for us. You know, we, we may hear those on a regular basis. We may have used those words. So now it's part of our it's part of our conversation. But prior to 9-11, prior to 16 years ago, you know, it really wasn't for most people. They used to mention jihad a lot though on the news uh, when we were dealing with Iran. Oh, yeah, I know. That's the thing. We heard it all the time. Right. Common sense, it was the Holy War. You know, it's what we really saw it as. Exactly, it yeah. really have anything beyond that. And that's a, that's a great point, is that it's not that it was new, but when you heard it, it really didn't have anything to do with the West because, you know, the Islamic Revolution in 79, you know, yeah. so there, there are their instances, you know, they... Uh, things happened in the 80s. We're talking, you know, the the Soviet war in Afghanistan. You know, that's that's uh, the classic example of jihad because, you know, that's where these guys are, Osama bin Laden and all these recruits are going to fight jihad against the Soviets. So the, the, the phrase existed going back to the early days of Islam, but for most of us it had no significance. It didn't really matter to us. Uh, groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda... Nowadays, they're in the news daily. You, right. you almost can't, if you read anything outside of the Detroit Free Press, or if you read an inter, a, a national news or an international newspaper, you're going to read something about Al-Qaeda or ISIS or these groups on a regular basis. I mean, we're, I was just reading an article about the Taliban. Remember the Taliban from 16 years ago. Now the Taliban in Afghanistan are stronger than, they, they control more provinces now than they have at any point in the past 16 years. So, Again, these, these groups now are just part of, uh, of the, our national conversation. Um, so if we, take, uh, if we were to take an informal poll, I think we'd probably see a, almost a universal familiarity with these concepts now. If, you, if I go around, almost every one of you, I'm sure, have heard this phrase and can give me a quick description of what I mean by Islamic fundamentalism, or at least you could describe in your own words, or jihad, which probably people couldn't have really done to that degree before 9-11. Uh, the qu- question, of course, the depth of the knowledge, the accuracy of the knowledge is, is questionable, but at least I think everybody is familiar and, and, and understanding what we're talking about. Uh, we're all made, post 9-11, we were all became aware of these things. Uh, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Wahhabi Islam, and Saudi Arabia. Right? Saudi Arabia, these big, important topics. So another quote, in the process of searching for answers about how 9-11 occurred, not enough recognition has been given to the, uh, to the fact that the majority of Muslims throughout the world, including in Saudi Arabia, decried and denounced the attacks of 9-11 as being an anathema to Islam rather than inherent to it. The actions of a minority of extremists have come to define for many non-Muslims the religion of Islam creating another barrier to understanding to understanding between world religions and then also fueling fears of an impending clash of civilizations. So some of you guys may have heard that expression before. Samuel Huntington coined this phrase in the late 80s, the clash of civilizations. And so sometimes you'll hear that expression. Well, we'll uh, attempt to uncover 
today is how should we understand the concept of jihad? What is the connection between jihad and fundamentalism? So real quickly, let's get into jihad itself. So it's first helpful to understand what jihad means. So you guys, uh, Ron, you said jihad, you, we, you said uh, holy war, right? That's what they used to right. say, yeah. So I think most of us, if we, we ask what is jihad, a lot of us would probably respond, it's, it's some type of holy war, Muslims wage. But uh, so, not to pick on Ron, but jihad in, in Arabic doesn't mean holy war. So it doesn't. That's exactly. It doesn't mean that. That's how it's used. But the word itself doesn't mean holy war. Uh, the word itself has never had any kind of ling- linguistic connection with warfare. So how it's used in the Quran, how it's used in Arabic, uh, classic Arabic literature, it has nothing to do with warfare. There's no inherent connection with the word jihad in warfare. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Quran uses two different words for warfare. Um, Qatl and harb. So harb just means war. So you'll hear that expression, uh, whether referring to World War II or anything else. Harb is just the word for war. Qatl is, is the word that you would say for, to kill. And those are the words that when, when the Quran or classic Arabic literature talks about warfare, it's one of those two words that it uses. It doesn't use the word jihad. Um, the root concept for jihad in Arabic language dictionaries means to exert oneself and taking extraordinary pains, employing oneself vigorously and diligently. So this, this effort, this struggle. The particular form of the root that the term jihad uh, we take the word, our, our, that word jihad from, expresses the action towards another entity. So in other words, jihad is rendered as exerting one's utmost efforts and abilities in relation to another, to something else. Not, not, you're not struggling against yourself. You're struggling against something. I mean, it could be yourself, but it's, it's a struggle against something else. And that other is usually defined as an object uh, something that has a strong moral disapproval that can range from a, a human enemy, so someone that is you know you have a moral issue with, to, to Satan, uh, or to the, even the evil inclinations of one's own self, to your own mind. So it's it's the struggle against any of those. It could be against a person, against you know spiritual issues, against uh, the sinful desires that you even have. So the, the struggle of exerting yourself. Uh, against something. The chronic usage of the term is, is actually pretty nuanced. It carries meaning uh, from anything from great personal effort. Uh, so it usually is transverted, translated as striving. So when you see that word, it's actually trans... When you see the word, uh, the root, it usually is translated as something to do with striving, not warfare, not fighting. So um, I don't know if I include an example here. Uh, and include examples. So uh, something like strive, strive to follow the right path. You know, nothing inherently warfare, no fighting. You know, struggle to stay on that right path. And that's where you would have you would have that word, uh, the root for jihad in there. That struggle, strive. Um, could be something as simple as religious piety. Uh, aiding or supplying the war effort against unbelievers. So there's a range of meanings for this root in the Quran. However we understand the term today, or however we see it used, we should at least at least recognize that there's no inherent violence associated with the term in the Quran itself. So there may be 
and uh, an element of violence in the usage of the word by people, but that's not coming from the Quran itself. The Quran itself doesn't inherently connect violence with the idea of jihad. Uh, no inherent association with holy war. So how do we get there, right? So the question is, it's obviously something going on because you, you're seeing, uh, you know, whether it's the jihad we, we just described against the Soviets in the 80s or what's going on in Syria or what's going on in Iraq. You know, there, there obviously is something going on. Muslims tend to, when speaking of jihad, refer to two different jihads. So if you were to go to a Muslim, um, you know, your coworker, a friend, a neighbor, and say, hey, can you tell me what jihad means? They're going to say that there's a greater jihad and a lesser jihad. There's two different jihads. You know, the greater jihad is the outward struggle. The struggle, excuse me, the inward struggle is the greater jihad. Um, the internal moral struggle is the greatest jihad. Is that struggle to, to be on that right path. The lesser jihad is that outer jihad, that fighting against unbelievers in defense of Islam. So that's modern-day Islamic usage. You know, you have these two, the outer, the greater, and the, the lesser jihad. Uh, these terms of lesser and greater are not in the Quran, so they don't are not using that phrase based on anything in the Quran. It's actually written in the Hadith. So those, the greater, lesser, are, 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 um, come from a Hadith, and I'll read the quote. So this is Muhammad returning from a battle, and he remarks to his, uh, to his followers. He says, we're returning from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad. So Muhammad's making, you know, he's returning from a battle he just won. And he's saying, we, we're now leaving the lesser jihad, this battle we just fought. And now going back to the greater jihad, which is now the, the moral struggle of keeping ourselves right before God. And so that's where the, the that hadith is where you get this idea of the greater and lesser jihad. Uh, Muslims and those who write favorably about Islam can argue from the Quran that when someone when someone like Osama bin Laden advocated for the killing of Christians and Jews, he was actually going against the spirit of Islam, as witnessed in both the Quran itself and in the life of Muhammad. So, you know, that's uh, the, a, a moderate Muslim would be accurate in saying that, right? Of course, we're getting to the point of why Osama bin Laden can say something like that, but at least uh, according to the religion. And, and I said, in the life of Muhammad. So there's a, a hadith where, um, uh, it, that's quote, uh, Muhammad is quoted as saying in this hadith, uh, Allah or God grants the gentleness what he does not grant to violence. What does that mean? So he he actually blesses those things that you do that are nonviolent, as opposed to violent means. So again, uh, when Osama bin Laden is advocating violence, modern Muslims are, are can point to this and say, well, that's actually even going against what Muhammad said. So the problem is that inherent in Islam, like all religions, in this is the spirit of independent reasoning. Particularly in Sunni Islam, this inherent, this independent reasoning. You know, in my own mind, I need to figure these things out. So that men who have religious training and recognition can reinterpret passages in new ways, ways that may have never been understood before in the religion. So this combined with responsibility, and they combine this with the responsibility of every Muslim to carry out jihad. So, although jihad doesn't have an inherent connection with violence, it is incumbent upon every Muslim to to wage jihad, to wage that struggle 
against evil in some form. So, uh, you know, this this idea of independent reasoning is important to understand how one group of Muslims can say, can advocate violence while the others uh, can deny it. The real challenge that confronts Muslim intellectuals is that political interests have come to dominate the public discourse and to a large extent moral discourses have been marginalized in modern Islam in many ways since the onslaught of colonialism and its aftermath. So we're talking about the modern day colonialism that started in 1798 with the French. So the French uh, land in Egypt in 1798 and it starts this modern period of uh, of colonialism, neo-colonialism. It's shortly after that that uh, Europeans, the Belgium, go into Congo and they recar- They talk about carving up the African cake. So they're, they're this new uh, modern period of colonialism. Muslims have become preoccupied with the attempt to remedy, and this is that, that first quote I, re- I read, preoccupied with the attempt to remedy a collective feeling of powerlessness and frustration, uh, a frustrating sense of political defeat, often by engaging in highly sensationalistic acts of power symbolism. So that's the warfare, right? The 9-11 towers. The theology of power in modern Islam is a direct contribution to the emergence of highly radicalized Islamic groups. So far from being authentic expressions of an inherited, inherited Islam, so it's not far from being what we see today in, in these Islamic fundamentalist group doesn't follow the, the trajectory of Islam that, that, that led up to it. It's, or it's not a natural out, outgrowth of the classic tradition. These are thoroughly a byproduct of colonialism and mod, uh, modernity. Such groups ignore the history of Islamic civilization, what we were talking about, the, the golden age of Islam, with all its richness, with all its diversity, and reduce Islam to a single dynamic, that dynamic of power. They tend to f- define Islam as an ideology of nationalistic defiance. And so this is what we see in the modern-day uh, Islamic State, ISIS, IS. You know, Islamic State, it's this idea of reasserting the caliphate, reestablishing the Islamic caliphate, this idea of power, re- re-grasping uh, this, this imagined golden age of Islam and, and bringing it back. And so this isn't something inherent in Islam because this is what the fascists did in the 20s and 30s that, that start with uh, in Italy and move to, to Germany. You know, there was this connection. Uh, if you if you ever study fascism, uh, you'll see that there was uh, Mussolini and, and the fascists in Italy harking back to the Roman period. So they look back what is Italy now? Italy is it was a backwards was really a backward state as the 20th century started. You know, um, you know, Italy was in really bad shape financially, but they they looked back to the, there was a group of men who served in the military who looked back and said, "What happened? We were, you know, under the Roman Empire, we were like the greatest, and now look at us." And so they 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 looked back to this period of time and wanted to re reestablish that greatness in their their lifetime. And there's so that correlation is that connection with what we see with Islamic fundamentalism. fundamentalism. It's not about it's not really about following the uh, tradition of Islam. It's that we, we see where we are now, we see where other countries are, and we shouldn't be where we are. 
and what we need to reestablish the greatness of Islam, and we're going to do it by violence. Any any questions on that? So, uh, really quickly, we'll talk a little bit about this Wahhabi Islam. You may have heard this phrase. Um, the distinct expression of Islam practiced in Saudi Arabia is known as Wahhabism. So if you look on your chapter 6, that Wahhabism, Wahhabi Islam. The term is derived from the family name of, uh, of someone who lived in the 18th century, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, this, this person who where we get this phrase Wahhabism. Um, he, he's born in uh, the central part of um, Saudi Arabia, and this is significant because, well, I won't get into the why right now, but it tells us that uh, he's not—he's outside of Mecca and Medina. His family is—they're coming from a, a back, a, a bit of a backwater of, of Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia, Mecca, and Medina, and the coastal part of of uh, the east, the western part of Saudi Arabia, have always been prominent. But the deserts part of the central section of Saudi Arabia is very, um, I don't want to say desolate, but there's just not as much going on. And so he's not coming from an important part. He's actually coming from a part that um, is, doesn't have as much uh, outside influence. Um, but the big question of that time is this, this perceived declining decline in Islam. If you if you know your world history, 18th century, 17th, or excuse me, the 18th going into the 19th century, you have uh, it's the age of empires still. Mm-hmm. So you have major empires controlling everything, with the exception of United, United, the United States. Mm-hmm. And so the Ottoman Empire controls most of what we would control the Middle East. But if you heard, if you know your world history during World War One, the Ottoman Empire is called the sick man of Europe. So they're on their decline at this point. So uh, there's this perception of like, why are, we see all the empires doing great, and we control the Muslims control vast swaths of land and resources and wealth, but for some reason we're still living like we were in the 13th century. You know, like we're not keeping pace. What's what's going on? How do we how do we get back to where we were? And so uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab is is growing is coming of age and he's studying theology he's a teacher a writer a preacher so he travels to Iraq gets more theological study he returns to Saudi Arabia a, a more being influenced by the things he had learned and he actually uh, sees a stricter version of Islam he also is the person that makes this alliance with Muhammad uh, uh, Muhammad Ibn Saud so, in, in the middle of the 18th century, 1744, Ibn Abdul Wahhab and Muhammad Ibn Saud make an alliance, a religious political alliance. And this is the, the foundations of the Saudi state. So, why, you know, so as we talked about before, Saudi Arabia, the Saud family runs the country politically, and, the Muslim, and there's Muslim clerics who, are, who run the religious aspects. And the two, two spheres, don't cross over. And this goes back to 1744 and this person, Ibn Abdel Wahhab. So he does a number of things in his lifetime that that we look to now and we see are significant. 
One of them is he cuts down a number of trees, which doesn't sound very big, but what was happening in his area was there was this grove of trees. And people would go to these trees and they'd hang little things on them, little amulets, little messages, and they and they believed these trees were somehow um, spirits lived in these trees and they could uh, have intercession with gods on their behalf. Uh, it's, it's similar almost to what you see, well, I don't know, but it was a, a practice that, you know, they allowed in that country. But when uh, Ibn Abdel Wahhab becomes aware of it, he goes and he cuts these trees down himself. And people are like, man, this guy, he doesn't, you know, like, it catches people off guard. Um, one of the other things he does, he tears down one of the tombs that of one of Muhammad's companions. So, so a contemporary of Muhammad, they had these tombs, and they, they still have them in certain places, uh, in Iraq particularly. Uh, but they, he goes to this tomb and he tears it down with his bare hands. Like he just rips the stones apart, breaks it all apart. And, you know, people are, couldn't believe it because this is a place of pilgrimage. People go there and they pray to this person to, on behalf, to intercess on behalf uh, to them to God. And so he sees this as people putting a false, a false religion, an aspect of uh, an intermediary between them and God. And so he's addressing these things. He's seeing these things and he's going right at which in a lot of ways is what we would do in Christianity, right? We don't want someone going to a priest and asking that priest to intercess on them behalf, on behalf of God, right? We, we, we have direct access to God. And at different times in Christian history, you know, different groups of Christians have, have tried to, inter, you know, whether it's Mary, whether it's a Catholic priest, you know, insert people into that process. And that same thing is going in Islam. And Ibn Abdul Wahhab is seeing this, and he's seeing this goes against the spirit of Islam, and we need to get rid of this. The, the third act that he does is he catches a, a woman comes to him and says, uh, "I'm actually I've been having this adulterous relationship with this man." Well, the end result is he stones her himself. Like he 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 brings her, and he's not by himself, but he he casts that stone and he puts her. But he doesn't do it immediately. He tries to get her to repent. He tries to get her to, uh, he tries to bring her to a, a court and say, like, you know, you need to get, you need to stop doing this. And from what the historical records say is that she just refused. She was very open and brazen about it. She's the one that approached him. But she, she refuses to repent. So according to the spirit of Islam, he, 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 they stone her. But these three events we now look to, and you actually see these these type of things going on. In my, they happened in Iraq within the last ten years. The tearing down of of these temp of things. So, do you remember what in Afghanistan? What did what did the Taliban? If you remember, one of the first things they do, there were all these big Buddha uh, statues in in the rocks. And one of the first things the Taliban does is they blow they blow them all apart because you know. They, and these were like. See, I mean, the side, the whole cliff side was these huge carved Buddhas. I mean, for us, you know, it's not a big deal. But the point is, where do they get these things? There's this precedent in this guy's life in the 18th century where he's doing these things. The stoning of women. ISIS did this. Islamic State was doing this in Syria. They would catch people in, uh, or, you know, there was videos of them throwing homosexuals off the roof of buildings because they would catch them in these. So where did they get these things? These go back to this person, uh, Ibn Abdel Wahab. 
Uh, Wahhabi Islam looks to the teaching of the Quran and the Hadith as primary sources. So, where do they get this stuff? The Quran and the Hadith. Ibn Abdul Wahhab rejected the Shia belief. Uh, that remember if we talked about the Shia belief that someone needed to interpret the inner meaning only only certain people could uh, understand the true essence of Islam according to Shia thought so he rejects that he says no one there doesn't need to be anyone between you and God you can it's almost like this idea of the priesthood of the believer where you you can interpret for yourself they believed in the uniqueness of Muhammad among other prophets if you remember we talked about Moses and Jesus are recognized Moses, David, and Jesus are recognized as great prophets but Muhammad was unique among all of them Uh, so that's why the Hadith become important it's not just the Quran but the Hadith because Muhammad is a prophet unlike any other so the things that he said the way he acted becomes very important for Wahhabi Islam central to the beliefs that he had uh, were absolute monotheism, theism. but and he believed that this only monotheism, the absolute monotheism that he believed that only existed in Islam. And we talked about why he believed that it didn't exist in Christianity because of the Trinity, things like that. No saints, no holy sites, nothing could be venerated or worshipped. Only God is absolute. Rejection of anything viewed as shirk. So we talked about magic, amulets. Remember, we showed some of the pictures of amulets and these things, charms, the little little uh, Islamic phrases you'll see on cards. They reject all of that stuff because they believe it's all, um, you know, it goes against the absolute monotheism of, of true Islam. The Wahhabis are have have been depicted as violent fanatics wreaking havoc, death, and destruction against anyone whom they consider to be unbelievers or associationists. The depiction clearly has no basis in the written works of Muhammad ibn Abdel Wahhab, although he taught that monotheism should always be upheld and association must always be eradicated. Association is that is that idea of something associated with God. So something on behalf that could intercess between you and God. It always has to be eradicated. Violence and killing were not the prescribed methods for achieving this goal, according to the writings of Ibn Abdel Wahhab. He always emphasized education and discussion as the appropriate means for calling people to monotheism. Rather than calling for violence and destruction, his writing on jihad were permanent with an emphasis on the importance of the preservation of life, whether it's human, plant, animal, as well as property. So then where does this violence come from? Because we said, as we said, the things that he practiced, we see in the, it happening in Iraq and uh, in Syria under the Islamic State. Where does it all come from? Well, and we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but it, it, it comes because in the, in, the, uh, excuse me, in the 20th century, you have the, what's the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is, it gets, uh, gets going um, under ha- uh, Hassan al-Banna in 1928. And it's under his teaching that there becomes a radicalization of Islam. And what, what happens, why does that take place? What, what is the context that that happens in? It's, it's the British colonial occupation of Egypt at that time. So his writing, uh, Hassan al-Banna, is writing... You know, 
he's seeing Islam and the Islamic country that he's part of being occupied by the British. So the vision of Islam he sees is resistance, that power we, we talked about. And the only way to deal with this foreign occupation is, is violence. And so he's writing in that context. And so Islam becomes more radicalized under the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, most of them are after, uh, you know, um, the British after World War One. they turn over all their colonial assets. They, they stop being colonializing uh, countries. Uh, and so they turn all this stuff over. Well, they, they start to pull back from some of these countries. And Egypt is, becomes a state. But and when the when Egypt becomes a state, they round up the Muslim Brotherhood and throw them all in jail. And it's but the problem is is in jail is where they become more radicalized. It's just like what we see sometimes in our own prisons. You know, you throw someone in jail who was maybe only doing petty crimes, and he learns how to do major crimes. You know, I know guys that went to jail and they come out and they know a lot more than when they when they went in because you know you have this situation where all guys can do. Is, is commiserate and, and radicalize each other. And that's what's happening in these jails in in uh, the 50s, 40s and 50s in Egypt. And you have this character, uh, Sayyid Qutb, who travels to America, so he has an experience in America for a couple of years, goes back to Egypt, joins the Muslim Brotherhood, is thrown in jail, becomes radicalized, writes, some, writes books, and all these books, his writings and his teachings are what influence uh, these these founders of Al-Qaeda. So a lot of these guys who... And so I'm trying to follow, show the line that happens. So, you know, they're, they're, they're bits and pieces taken from here and there, and it's all coming to, uh, uh, you know, where we are today. But it's not emerging from the truth, from... It's not following a trajectory from Muhammad, the Islam that was practiced under Muhammad. You know, it's it's it becomes bastardized. And becomes and, and has a, a, a big influence by world events. You know, the interaction with the West, colonialism, all these things have. And so, why uh, we talked about why did Osama bin Laden see the United States as a valid target? Because because of what we what happened after Desert Storm, and we used Saudi Arabia uh, to to station our troops. And so now he's saying, you know, oh, they're occupying the holy states of Islam. So now, you know, so there's, um, they're seeing it, you know, trying to reassert the greatness of Islam and seeing uh, this occupation of the West, and it just becomes this, this struggle. So it's, you know, I, I say all this, and the point of all this is just that we, we need to be able to differentiate between the person we're interacting with in Dearborn and, and what we're seeing manifesting itself. Uh, you know, sometimes people will say, well, do you think, you know, the, you know, like they're almost like people believe that the Muslims, they're, they're waiting for like the trigger to get violent. But most of them have no, there's no inclination for the most Muslims that we're interacting with, that we're going to interact with to do these kind of things. And most of them are going to uh, try to distance themselves from the violence. And we just need to realize that um, you know, not trying, and again, we're not trying to say that Islam is a great religion or that it's peaceful. It's just that what we're seeing, these violent manifestations, aren't, aren't exactly the, um, the true religion of Islam. And so I think that holds up whether, when you look at the Quran, when you look at the Hadith, 
Of course, there is it, but we're not trying to deny that it doesn't exist. So we'll wrap up. Any so that, good 12 weeks. I wish there was more questions. Um, so in the Quran, it's, uh, if you could please remind me, is there violence in there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there is a, uh, a command to resist, uh, to, to safeguard Islam, to uh, uh, protect Islam against invaders, to spread Islam whenever you can, as often, you know, to uh, put idolaters uh, to, you know, you can punish idolaters, things like that. You know, so there, it is, it, it's there. Within their own. The problem is, is people interpret things differently. And so for the vast majority of Muslims, they're not going to see that as a call to arms. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. It, just a hypothetical situation. If, if, if the economy and the government of the United States would collapse, uh, take East Dearborn, for instance. Okay, there, there are some radical people in East Dearborn. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was in the newspaper several years ago. Anyway, yeah. safe houses and whatnot. Anyway, Anyway, the thing is, 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 would it be possible that those Muslims who are moderate would would cave in to the radical and do the bidding of of making anybody that was not Muslim in East Dearborn Muslim? Yeah, I think what what we could do is just look at the Middle East and see that probably not because Syria. When Syria was failing and Iraq is failing, the vast majority of people didn't join up with these with these groups. Really, they ran. Uh, a lot of these people, they just ran. That's why you have these refugees. You know, a million refugees in, in Lebanon. Okay, but if you know, you a have, couple million in, in what's that? If there's no place to run to. Well, you know, yeah, it's it's hard to answer that because I think people. The majority of Muslims, I think, and I, I really believe this, is that they just want the same things we all want. You know, they want to just have, see their kids grow up and live comfortable lives and marry, see their kids get married and, you know, work and, and live comfortable lives and be, live at peace with people. Um, and, and the evidence is that in, in these failed states, in these places in, in northern Iraq, in the, ISIS, in the ISIS strongholds, the majority of the people didn't join up with ISIS. Okay. ISIS, the Islamic State, held them at hostage, you know, and terrorized the local population because they they didn't want anything to do with these groups, you know. And so I think I I, I would say no. I don't think okay. there may be some that do, but I think you would have that regardless of religion. You know, you're going to have uh, white nationalists and supremacists. Who would do something similar? I think uh, if the state fails, if the nation, the, the government falls, and we're in a period of anarchy, then I, you know, it's. But you know, that's all hypothetical. Yeah, it's, it's hypothetical, uh, counterfactual. But I think I don't think so. Is okay. the short answer? So. The last question, yeah, Aaron. Um, so I know, like within Christianity, of course, we send out missionaries. <coughs> yeah, and of course. That being said, in the Muslim or in Islam, is there quite a few missionaries that actually go out to other countries as well? Uh, yes, but not in the same fashion. The, yeah, the outreach, I guess. Yeah, there, there is, but it's not. it doesn't take the same shape. 
It's not like the church planning ministries. Sure. You know, like let's start a mosque. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get let's group. You know, it's, in all seriousness, let, like okay. we do here, like we're gonna do a church plant in Detroit, mm-hmm. and so we're gonna send a team down and try to gather support. So it's not doesn't take that same form. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it may be something like just trying to get Islamic education in the school, or like let's let's try to spread Islam through passive ways mm-hmm. and see if we can get interest, and then we'll just build a mosque. Saudi Arabia will fund the building of a mosque in an area, and we'll try to seed it that way. But it, it's there is it just doesn't take the same shape as the sure. Christianity. Yeah. Did you have a question or? All right. So thanks for the period. I hopefully it was helpful for everyone. Uh, let me close this in prayer, and then we can uh, wrap up our. Lord, we we just thank you for this, these twelve weeks and this opportunity to learn a little bit more about. The religion of Islam and how we can uh, better uh, communicate and live and uh, just interact with our Muslim neighbors that we may ultimately reach them for Christ. They, their need, their greatest need is to know you. And we just pray that we would be able to take the knowledge that we've gained and the things that we've learned and, and put them to use by sharing uh, God's love uh, with Muslim friends and neighbors. Lord, we ask for grace to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.